0: After a couple of weeks off from the Gospel of Matthew, this morning we are finding ourselves back in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at chapter 9, and um, before we get into the Scripture itself, I want to say to you that as a pastor who is a part of our church and who is a part of the preaching and teaching schedule, it's an encouragement to me that that our congregation is taking seriously the Scriptures. Um, and that you who are here this morning and you who have been here over the last several weeks going through these verses and these chapters of Matthew's Gospel, that you're taking to heart uh, in whatever ways you are, what you're hearing preached. And I want to say that part of this sermon series, uh, in fact, all of this sermon series is about you and me and us being transformed by the Word of God. And we don't just get transformed by the Word of God by hearing it preached. We we are transformed by God's Word when we come before the Scriptures again and again and again and place ourselves before those dangerous words. And, 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 and my encouragement to you and to us is that we continue to come before Scripture, that we continue to sit our lives before Scripture, to open up the Word of God, and to in various ways, week after week, say, God, what will you say to me today? God, what will you say to our church today? And God, how will you transform me? How will you transform me? us. And so as we, uh, and sometimes we can forget that the point of preaching, that the point of small groups, that the point of coffee conversations when we talk about spiritual things, that the point is not just to talk for the sake of having said things. The point is not just to preach for the purpose of preaching and saying that that was done. The point is not just to come to small groups, as Pastor David talked about, not just to gather for the purposes of fellowship or even just for study for the sake of study, but the purpose behind what we do is transformation, is change, is to make me and to make you that much more like Jesus, that much more like the church that follows Jesus, that much more the disciplined one, the one who has studied Jesus and said, I'm learning this about Jesus, what does it mean for me? I'm seeing this about Christ, what does it mean for our church? And so let's read Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Uh, I'm going to read just the first uh, 13 verses and uh, we'll see how much of those 13 verses we can cover. I'll read that uh, and hear the word of God. And if you have your, your Bible, you can read along uh, with me. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, That's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you have such evil in your hearts? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. Verse 8 says, Fear swept through the crowd as as they saw this happen, and they praised God for sending a man with such great authority. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This is God's word uh, for us this morning. There are, there are two uh, stories in uh, these 13 verses that, that I've read. One Uh, One part or one stream, one story is an expression of Jesus' love and his authority through the forgiveness of sins and through healing. And the second part of the passage that we read is is what's happening uh, when Jesus calls a person to be his disciple. And so this morning, uh, let's see how much of either uh, I can talk about and then we leave. The first eight verses uh, is where we see this healing uh, taking place, and uh, most likely this is happening during a religious service in the synagogue. We know that the teachers of the law are there, and Jesus is coming into uh, this setting. He seems to do a lot of ministry with Pharisees around, and with lawyers around, and with scribes around, and so this this, uh, episode or this event is not different, and this, this healing Healing is taking place. And Matthew's account of this healing is very similar to uh, Mark and Luke's in those particular gospels. And, and so we're looking at a biography of Jesus, seeing his life, seeing the events in his life and his teachings, and this healing confronts us. And Jesus walks into this situation, uh, friends bring a man to him, and Jesus addresses this man, but he says to him with his friends waiting, your sins are forgiven. Jesus addresses him and his sins in the present tense. He doesn't talk about sins that he has committed necessarily. He doesn't say to him, "Um, uh, I'm going to address those sins that the usual priestly sacrificial system are in place to address. No, he says to this man, your sins right now are forgiven. His message to this man is be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven. Now, think about it for a minute. Think about this, this paralyzed man and the friends that Matthew says brings him before Jesus. Think about them and think about how they have to be, be watching for Jesus to do uh, whatever he's going to do. Think about the expectations that they have to come with in order to lay this man before Jesus. And here is Jesus. He's looking at a paralyzed man. Their friends who aren't mentioned after we hear that they bring him to Jesus are waiting for Jesus to, to do the obvious thing. And that is, has healed this man. And Jesus doesn't do the obvious thing initially. He does something that, that, that's a little misunderstood, that, that we can't necessarily wrap our heads around. And I think what he does is he anchors us in this man's main issue. And Jesus says to him, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven. And, 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 and for us who know how the story kind of wraps up, we can kind of run to the next verse because the apparent thing is what I would assume this paralyzed man is looking forward to, his friends looking forward. They didn't necessarily need to come to Jesus for this. They came to Jesus because the man was paralyzed. And Jesus, rather than healing the man quickly, he forgives his sin. He says to him, what I think the core issue is, I'll address it, and that is your sin. Matthew puts this language of the forgiveness of sin before us, and we know there's a man who needs to be healed. We wonder, when we listen to these words of Jesus, whether this man's illness, whether his sickness is because of his sin. Honestly, we don't know that there are references in the Gospels uh, where the disciples ask Jesus well uh, and, and others ask Jesus, "Well, is it because of sin that this person is sick uh, and we don't have the benefit of seeing a direct relationship in these words with this man's background, this man's life, this man's story, and his sin, and his paralysis. But Jesus goes right to the heart, and before we get to uh, this encouragement, this forgiveness of sins. Uh, Um, Let's let's agree that that paralysis in this text or the obvious effects uh, of pain and suffering and anguish in our lives can come from many different directions. And it is not necessarily a biblical view of suffering to say that I messed up and therefore I suffer. That I made the wrong decision and God is using my poor choices against me. That I said something wrong and therefore all of my life is falling apart because of what I said, because of how I lived, because of what I did. It's true that what I do can have consequences and can be the result uh, or or the reason for some of my suffering, but it's not always the case. And so in Matthew chapter 9, we're scratching our heads. We're seeing that sin impacts us. We're seeing and knowing that this man could have sinned. We're seeing and knowing in our own lives that sin breaks our ability to make good choices. That sin hinders our ability to do what God uh, would have us to do in our lives for us to be whole. But beyond that, beyond that, there is still this space in us that wonders, is what I've done the reason why I am where I am? And this paralyzed man who is brought before Jesus, told to be encouraged, has to sit and wonder the same thing. Jesus addresses this man and he addresses first and foremost sin as the fundamental problem the fundamental issue not necessarily what we see, not necessarily what we discern with our eyes, not necessarily what we can pick up because it's apparent or calculate and quantify. But Jesus goes to the heart of this man's life and he forgives his sin. He shows us right from the beginning that the primary mission of Jesus is sin overcome. We see Jesus already in Matthew's gospel and we will get to see Jesus going forward in Matthew's gospel. Overcoming sin, embodying it, teaching it, preaching it, showing us in miracles and healings, showing us and leading his disciples in a lifestyle that says there is a thing called sin and I am here. My ministry and mission and kingdom is about overcoming sin. This means two things for us, two things for us as a congregation. Maybe it means more, but I have two. The first thing is that uh, Jesus addresses our sin. Jesus uh, addresses our sin problems, whatever they are. We bring our sins before God when we repent, when we confess, when we turn ourselves over to Christ because His mission is to overcome not just big sins of the world and of the cosmos and of society, but Jesus Christ comes into our life to address the sins in our lives. Those things that separate us from a loving relationship with God, Jesus comes and says to us, be encouraged, your sins are forgiven. Those things that remove the truth of God from our ears. Jesus comes and says, be encouraged, your sins are forgiven. The things, the mistakes that pile on top of each other until we begin to believe that we are those mistakes, that we are those errors, that we are those bad decisions. Jesus comes and says, be encouraged, your sins are forgiven. And when Jesus says this to this man, he is dealing a final blow to sin. We know because we have the benefit of all of the New Testament that the power of sin is broken because of Jesus and his death at the cross and his resurrection. We know that sin is impotent, that sin is without strength because Jesus has handled sin for us in a very real way. And sometimes what we do is we disconnect that from the reality of our lives and from what we're dealing with in front of us on a day-to-day basis. So we'll hear it and it'll go in one, ear it'll leave out of the other ear and we will forget that when jesus comes to address sin when jesus comes to overcome sin he comes to address it in us so here's a question if there are sins in our lives And the same sins in our lives from one year to another, from one decade to another. One question that people who are following Jesus have to ask is, is Jesus addressing me? The answer is not an automatic yes. In some ways, the question is, is Jesus addressing you? Is Jesus addressing me? Am I hearing the the powerful, transformative word from God that says, Be encouraged, your sins are forgiven. Because if Jesus does anything, he addresses sin. And he does that before he gets to the other stuff that we generally expect him to do. If Jesus can address sin, if he can forgive sin, if he can see sin and not dismiss it, but if he can see it and forgive it, which takes more strength, which takes more power, which takes more character, if he can forgive sin, what else can he not do? And that's the legal scholar's problem in the text with Jesus, because Jesus is taking on one of God's prerogatives. He is taking on one of God's qualities. You have friends, most of you, right? You have friends. Uh I want you to think about one of your closest friends and so get one of your closest friends on your mind. I sat with uh, some of my friends yesterday for an early dinner and we don't get to do this or well, somebody came in from out of town so everybody else who lives here got together and I'm looking around the table uh, at my friends and sometimes you don't want to keep the friends you have but you know we're Christians so so we you know <laughs> we, we keep them. And I'm I'm looking at some of my friends and I'm looking at them and I am able to close my eyes and recognize the voices of all of my friends. I am able to tell you something about them because we have been in friendship for a long time. I'm able to tell you a quality or a characteristic that distinguishes my friend from anybody else. I can give you my own personal assessment of who they are, what they love, what they don't, and I can do that because they are my friends. They have these attributes, these qualities that make them who they are that I can explain. And when I talk to you this morning about God's prerogative, I'm talking about God's quality and characteristic. Like you think about your friend, you're able to kind of say, yeah, that friend loves this. <clears throat> that friend is able to do that. That friend doesn't do this well. And so when, when we talk about God's quality and God's characteristics and who God is and what makes God God, we're talking about the, uh, God being able to do things that other people cannot. And these legal scholars, when they say, isn't that blasphemy? They are pointing out a truth that when Jesus forgives this man's sin or when Jesus Jesus proclaims this man's sin forgiven, he is doing something that only God can do. He is doing something that distinguishes God from everybody else. And so they say, uh, if he is claiming to forgive sin, he is claiming one of the qualities that only God has. Isn't that blessed? And there are several types of blasphemy in scripture uh, and, and and we could go down those rabbit trails but uh, and talk about why these 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 leaders and these lawyers are upset with jesus he, he is pronouncing healing in a fashion that only God could pronounce. He is dealing with this man 's sin problem in a way that only God could deal with and and he is expressing a characteristic or a quality that makes God, God. And so he is saying, when he opens, uh, when he opens uh, the, this opportunity to this man, that I am able to do what only God can do, and that is forgive your sin. So Jesus addresses these things, and he says this not just to this man, but to us this morning. I can deal with your sin problem. And dealing with sin always includes forgiveness. It's never just investigating it. It's never just learning the story of your sin. It's never just seeing where it came from and how you started this life and this pattern that points to something else other than God. It's never that. It is always getting to forgiveness. The second thing, outside of the fact that Jesus addresses our sin, that I think this means for us is that everything else is secondary. That's sort of a a, a homiletical cop-out in some ways. But if Jesus addresses our sin, whatever comes after our sin comes after our sin. Whatever comes after forgiveness comes after forgiveness. And in this text, it is healing. Now, now, hear me very clearly to say that healing and working bodies or temporarily working bodies, depending on how you look at it, are, are not without significance to God. It is important to God that we have healed bodies, that, that, we, are, that we are whole, that we are healthy. Healthy, that we are flourishing physically and so forth. So don't, don't misunderstand me to say that healing for the sake of healing isn't important. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus heals. Matthew, when he talks about Jesus healing over and over, when people come to him, and you'll see this throughout chapter 9, Jesus heals them, has compassion on them, heals them, and in some texts, you'll see that he heals all of them. So the writers of the Gospels are making this point that Jesus doesn't encounter sick people and leave them sick. When Jesus sees sick people, he heals them. So that is a part and an expression of the kingdom of God. It is plain. It is common in the kingdom for you and I to be healed. And that's just not mental. That's just not emotional. That is mental. That is emotional. That is physical. It is a part of life in the kingdom to be healed. But healing and any other expression of the kingdom is always built upon the truth that our sins and those things that take us out of relationship with God are addressed first. These uh, religious lawyers are present and they are parsing jesus 's words, they are slicing his sermon, they're looking at his points, they are listening for him to say something, and he does he he satisfies their curiosity when he when he um, when he makes this blasphemous claim, but jesus doesn't let them get caught in the conversation about blasphemy the the theoretical conversation about blasphemy, the theological and sometimes uh, disconnected conversation about blasphemy. He brings blasphemy down so that they can see it in their own lives. And he's, he asks them a question. He says something to them about their hearts. And he takes them to a passage in Hosea. He quotes this passage. And, and, uh, and, and I'm going to get there in a second. But before ending with that and moving to the last part of the passage, um, Jesus responds to these friends and to this man. And he heals. He does. So this man, um, who, who I'm sure is a little vulnerable and a little nervous because he's paralyzed, and Jesus says, be encouraged. And then he goes and starts having a debate with uh, lawyers. And I, I mean, I have to wonder whether these friends are kind of like, OK, Jesus, get to the next part. Jesus, get to the point, get to the reason why we brought this man here. And so eventually Jesus does. Um, and, and, and Matthew says that he saw their faith. Jesus responds not to the faith of this paralyzed man, but to the faith of his friends, and he heals this man. Now, it it could be, because I suppose you can read the text and, and hear Jesus saw their faith and include this paralyzed man in that there. But Jesus is responding to faith and, and I want to say two things about Jesus responding to their faith and healing. And I think this is, this is more my, my push for us as a church to think about this, not just for you individually. But I think this uh, means for us as a church that we have the freedom to lose faith. And that we are a community of people who are used to what it means interact with each other when some of us have doubts. Matthew says these friends brought this man to Jesus. And, uh, and I, I am a pastor, I am a preacher, and so I am not the one who endorses wholesale doubt. A part of what we do is create uh, an environment for faith to flourish. That, that's, that's, what, that's what we try to do. That's, we try to build that in each other, form that in each other, because there's a lot in life to make us hopeless. Mm. So this is not a, 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 an endorsement of doubt, as much as it is an observation that there are those of us, as Pastor David talked about when we pray, there are those of us who feel distant from God, those of us who are so mistreated by life, that we no longer believe that God can encourage us, can forgive us, can heal us. And what I'm saying is that for us as a church, I think this passage calls for us to say that's okay. Not that doubt for the sake of doubt is okay, but when and if you lose faith, you are around friends, brothers, and sisters who can have faith for you. That, That we assume that you will lose your strength and your grip and your strong ability to believe God. And that coming here, coming to small groups, coming to men's group, coming to conversations in our homes is an opportunity for us to say, oh, I can be strong for you this time. After I think this gives us sort of freedom to lose faith from time to time, freedom for us to doubt. I think the second thing that this part of Matthew uh, allows us or invites us to do is to be a part of the some people the some people. Matthew says that some people brought this man to Jesus. And, and here's the thing about being a part of the some people, that group that, that is hardly detailed and described. It's it, it, being a part of some people who bring broken people or paralyzed people or hurting people to Jesus means that you in your effective ministry will be summarily overlooked that nobody will know the details about you when you're a part of the some people. And there is an invitation in this text for us as a church to be less concerned about being named and more concerned about putting people before Jesus. In some ways, it matters very much that people begin to know New Community Bronzeville does this in the community, does that in the school, does this and that and the other. And in other ways, it doesn't matter at all. Because we are a church that is trying to be behind these words of Jesus. And that is, well, what's the name of that church? Some people over there, some people, huh? And if and when that happens, that is, that, that is esteeming us in being a more biblical people. But here's the thing. When you're a part, when I'm a part of some people, um, what we do and what we give may be underappreciated. At least as it relates to the community at least as it relates to what it means to say uh, thank you, at least as it relates to what it means to exalt every individual act of hospitality and kindness and transformation, at least as it relates to everything you may do to bring that neighbor, to bring that friend, to bring that co-worker before Christ so that he or she can be transformed. When you're a part of some people, you get used to other people and their needs coming before your own acknowledgement. Now, now, that doesn't mean that we're not a nice church, that we want, don't want to be a church that expresses gratitude and that is kind and that is saying, look at what God is doing through that person. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that when we don't highlight each other enough, that the reason we're not highlighting each other is because we're highlighting the Savior who breaks the power of sin and who heals. And when that Savior is exalted, we can kind of nod our heads and say, that's what I wanted." taking pleasure in someone else's healing somebody else's growth somebody else's flourishing even when your presence in their lives may be a passing reference mr mishmahishen is a teacher and some of his students will remember him for the rest of their lives. They will come back to the schools and they will come back because of him. They will look for him. And if he has moved from the school, they will be upset because they don't know how to find him. And they will, in their own way, try to say, you make a difference. You matter to me. What you did, what you do matters to me. But then there will be all those other students And most of them will be the ones where he has prayed hardest. All those other ones who've walked across the stage, probably because he has spent time after school and before school, and he has brought resources, and he has done this and that, and he will more often be overlooked. And that's what it means to be a part of the some people. And I think that's the invitation in Matthew chapter 9. I think the invitation and and, and part of this is what we get to see when Matthew is called to be a disciple. So these friends coming and putting this paralyzed man before Jesus, Jesus forgiving this man's sins and healing him, escorts us to the calling to be a follower of Jesus. What does it mean? Over and over, Matthew is pointing out discipleship means this. Following Jesus means that. Being a Christian means this and that. Being a part of a group that puts folks before Jesus. Jesus coming to Matthew in the second part of this passage and calling Matthew to be this disciple. Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Jesus says to him, follow me and be my disciple." Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. He does it immediately. And, and Matthew's doing something that I don't think I can do. Some of, you, some of you hear God and you go. Some of us hear God and we kind of wait to see if God's going to change God's mind. Right? It's like, all right. all right, you didn't mean that, right? Or you meant that for the person sitting next to me. You meant that for me to tell my wife. You didn't mean that for me. <coughs> Matthew gets up. He follows, and him following is convicting for me. He follows Jesus. And then we cut to a scene in Matthew's house. Matthew invites Jesus and the disciples to his home, and the Pharisees are there. We don't know if they're on the guest list or if they just sort of crash the party, uh, but they show up or they're somewhere around. They're close enough to see who is on the guest list and who is coming, these sinners, as they call them, these other tax collectors and sinners who are present. And 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 I actually give the Pharisees some credit because they they don't even deal with the fact that Matthew is being called to be a disciple. Matthew is a cheat. Matthew's a scoundrel. He is a tax collector, and tax collectors are cheaters what they do is they collect money for the government but their collections aren't regulated so if you have to pay taxes nobody really gives you the right amount of tax to pay the right amount of tax for the collector to collect and so the collector can say oh no you owe me some more and what the, tele- the collector does is gets enough for the government but the collector also gets enough for the collector and so his reputation is maligned. People hate tax collectors because they're they're cheaters because they they take more money than they need. And here's this tax collector who is being converted, and he's following Jesus, and he opens up his home and has a party. And and I think I think that Matthew knows enough. Um, it knows enough about Jesus that he can handle this invitation, uh, that he can come to his home. You know, but I also think that Matthew is a little nervous because here he is. He's got these friends, these co-workers who are coming over. This is, this is, this is not like this, but it's kind of like this. It is like this, like this. <clears throat> this is not like this. And it's kind of like this. This is not like this. And it's kind of like this. A pastor shows up at your house. And all your coworkers are there, and you have no clue what the pastor's gonna say. And you're wondering, you're wondering, David's kind of cool, but I've never really seen him in this kind of and he's never really met my co-workers. And is he gonna embarrass me? This is not like this, and this is kind of like this. David, <laughs> David, David is not Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. He's not Jesus. Uh, he's not Jesus. If I had used myself, I would say I'm closer to the Pharisees than I am Jesus, but not, not David. David is like closer to the disciples. I'm still around more in the Pharisees camp, but, but, but it's kind of like, like that, right? You, you, invite, you invite the pastor or somebody you know really loves Jesus, but you don't know how social they are. And, and maybe you just invited them and you didn't really want them to come, but they came anyway. <laughs> and Matthew is in his house with Jesus and his other disciples, all of whom were closer to being godly than he was because he was a cheat. So he's bringing these people around his real friend. And we get a picture, not necessarily a teaching but a picture of what discipleship is. Discipleship is inviting Jesus to all your parties, even when you don't know what he'll say when he gets there. Discipleship and follow... Matthew, follow me. Okay. Following Jesus Looks like you opening up your home and all those doors to all those closets. I thought about Carlos when I was writing this message, because Carlos Dotson comes over to your house, invited or not. He's always invited when he comes to your house. But invited or not, he will go through every room and door. He's the type to open up cabinets. He's Op- he opens up closets, and he wants to see what's here. He wants to see. And Carlos is the person that you only want to invite when you've cleaned up everything. <laughs> I don't know that he opens up hampers and laundry bags, but, you know, if he thinks something is there interesting, he might kind of move stuff around. This is- and I think about Jesus, right, and Matthew, and wondering if Jesus is closer to Carlos when he comes to your house. And the truth is, Jesus is kind of like Carlos. (laughs) Carlos, don't get that wrong, okay? Don't get that wrong. (laughs) Don't hold this against me later. But Jesus is the person who comes to that follower's house, that disciple's house, and you don't know what he's going to do, how he's going to react, but you've put your life before him and said, I'll follow you. I close this morning. Yeah. Ask yourself, are there places in my life where I have said to Jesus, I will follow you in this, but not in that that I will invite you into my home, into my soul, into my agenda. But I am not sure I will follow your home, your rules, your agenda. Because the picture that's lifted up for us is a reckless abandonment of Matthew's questions and issues. We... We see Jesus walking in, these Pharisees coming back, and Matthew saying to Jesus, I said I would follow you, so I meant I would open up my home to you. I meant I would open up the places where I only bring my closest friends. I meant that I would open up all that I have and put it before you, and I'd let you walk around, and I'd let you comment, and I'd let you say to me, you know, Matthew, this is what it means to follow me. The Pharisees, they, they don't tag Matthew for his conversion, but they do come back to Jesus. They come back to his disciples and they say, why is it that Jesus is eating with those sinners? Why is it that Jesus is eating with those other tax collectors? And, and let's not demonize them. Let's, let's see their question as a really good question. And, and Jesus, knowing their question, says to them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want to show mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus answers their question by saying, sick people need a doctor. Then he says something else. He says, in other words, you are a sick person. He's a bit more sophisticated uh, than, than saying it just that way. But he says to them, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. They are used to the language of scripture. So he points them back to something that he knows they're familiar with to invite them to discipleship to invite them to come a little closer to truth. He doesn't cast the Pharisees out. He doesn't sort of mishandle them. He says to them, I know you like scripture. I know you like to study. So I am going to point you in a a direction. And hopefully when you go in that direction, you will see truth that I mean for you. He says to them, what does it mean to desire mercy and not sacrifice? Jesus says to them, you're really good at sacrifice, you're good at ritual, you're good at worship services and ceremonies, but what about mercy? What about steadfast love? He emphasizes mercy, not sacrifice, but mercy. Not what they do and how they accomplish their tasks as Pharisees and religious leaders, but mercy. He emphasizes mercy and forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, who has come to wash away our sins, Jesus who has come to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins, Jesus who comes to justify wrongdoers, says to these Pharisees, nothing about doing something else. He says something to them about mercy. He says to them, learn something else. Learn mercy. It's, it's hard to, to learn what mercy is and steadfast love when, you're, when your picture of God is about keeping rules and when your picture of God is about all you do. And these Pharisees are hearing Jesus and he's hearing, they're hearing his hard words about steadfast love, mercy, mercy. One commentator it's the last thing I say, so uh, Zach, worship team, come back. One commentator I read uh, said that mercy is a better way of obedience. Mercy is a better way of obedience. And church, I wonder if we can live with mercy. Those words, that that there is obedience in the things that we do, that there there is obedience in conforming our lives to what the Bible says. There is obedience to doing what Scripture is clear about. And then there is another obedience. There is a deeper obedience. There is a better obedience called mercy, called giving yourself over to steadfast love. Giving your life before Jesus who loves you over and over again despite what you do so that at some point it can connect in your life that however you're treated by friends or family or loved ones or however you're not, you too can be merciful. I can be merciful. Our church can obey in this better way. Jesus who has forgiven our sins gives us this healing to show us that in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, I will not only forgive you, but I will give you something tangible to remind you that every time you get up in the morning that your sins were forgiven. So this paralyzed man is forgiven. This paralyzed man is healed. And Matthew escorts us to this calling, this narrative, where we sit with not just what it means to follow for the sake of following, but to follow and to give mercy, love, over and over again. Pray with me. and uh, I'm going to pray that God's hard words about strong and steadfast love grip our hearts daily. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your great love for us. Thank you that uh, you are merciful, that your love for us is sure, that it is steadfast, that it is strong. Your mercy endures forever. Your love endures forever. So God, as we, um, as we close this service, would you send echoes in our spirits and in our hearts this week that you're able to heal, but that you're also able to forgive sin. Would you remind us, Lord, that you have given us mercy, that you have called disciples but never called us without giving us steadfast love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.